Newman, Buzz Eisenberg is off today, and we have a bit of a fish ramp for you with Dan Torres and Jess Tyler. Let's start with where where we've been, the important news that we were just dissecting before we came on the air. <laughs> Jess, tell us what you had for us. Okay, well, and then promise, folks, we're going to get to something serious in a minute. But all right, first, hard hitting. Taylor Swift at the Chiefs game last night with Travis Kelsey. This is the third game out of four that she has been cheering him on. Also, big news from last night, she was talking to his dad. So before that, she had just met the mom. Now she's met both parents. So. Aha. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Breaking news, sort of. Yeah, breaking news. I, and I did mention before I, that she was asked, this goes back a little bit, what happens if this romance doesn't work out? And she said, I do revenge songs really well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people that they've been written about for sure. So I'm sure, Travis seems like he'd be thrilled with the song, even if it was bad. You know her. <laughs> I do. I met her when I was in uh, country radio. She was when she was sixteen. She came with her mom to all the stations and visited everybody. And just through the years after that, she's she's really great. She's one of those people that makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. Number one and number two remembers everybody and sends like handwritten cards. Like I've handwritten cards from her from after our meetings, and I got to go to like her Nashville condo and hang out at her house. And for a while, um, so my, you have her autograph. Oh yeah, I have all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, my oh, son, wow. for, my son for a while, who's around the same age, um, I she hung out with him a little bit, and I was like, oh my gosh, if they could just get married, that'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and there's my four hundred one k right there. <laughs> okay, well that does sound pretty terrific. Yeah, that was the breaking news of the day, Bill. All right, other breaking news of the day: front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Protesters take aim at defense contractor Dateline Northampton. Boats, trailers used to block entrance to L3 Technologies, a story you've covered on. Mm -hmm. uh, Covered it this morning, yeah. So the story is that there were boats blocking L3 Harris's entrance. We had protesters on the show yesterday Mm -hmm. during the time when no arrests were being made. And things seemed pretty copacetic at L3 Harris. At some point, I take it that either L3 Harris tired of their entrance being blocked and Mm -hmm. perhaps deliveries not being able to be made or people not being able to get into their workplace. And the Gazette reports that the protesters remained there for at least six hours before state police and the Northampton police began removing them. Police used saws to free the demonstrators who had chained themselves, and then they arrested seven people. So I understand from this story and from your reporting, Jess, on the news this morning, that this action had been planned long before... Months ahead of time, yeah. ...the uh, Hamas attack Mm -hmm. on Israel commenced. Nonetheless, and I'd appreciate yours and Dan's perspective on this, the story in the Gazette goes on to talk a lot about Hamas and Israel. And the protesters said, yes, in fact, that... That war is is a reason to underscore, a reason that underscores our protest here today or mm-hmm. yesterday. Yeah, and I'm wondering if that makes sense to you. Um, I think that they are using it to kind of prove their point that all war is bad and they shouldn't be manufacturing those weapons. But um, like you said, they planned this months in advance. The timing just worked out that way. I also enjoy the fact that they bring the boats with them. They towed the boats there. It was like three trailers and three boats. They brought them along with them. But, yeah. What do you think, Dan? Uh, well, I you know, t- I think they feel like this is uh, a step up from just protesting, 
where it could happen that you go out and protest and you get your word out and you get that representation and then everybody goes home. This feels like a, a step up in, in the hierarchy of, of um, I don't know what to call it, but in terms of protesting, it feels like this one's a more direct action, I think is the word. Well, right? it is more, it is more, direct, more direct action. Direct you're action. highlighting this issue and you're not highlighting it directly. You're highlighting a supplier of this thing that you think needs to be stopped. And it's civil disobedience. And which, civil disobedience. Which yeah. ups the ante, obviously. Yeah. The police get involved. The courts get involved. Uh, the press. But they the sounded media. like the police were really nice to them yesterday, initially. Now, what were they arrested for, Bill? You're a lawyer. Tell us. Well, I can't tell you because I haven't seen the papers, but I assume they were arrested for trespassing and maybe something else, but hopefully not. I mean, yeah, that... it was reported that there was like some angry protests or angry exchanges between the protesters and people that were trying to get into work. Oh. Um, so I don't know if any of that maybe escalated a little bit, but there was some exchanges going back and forth there hmm. yesterday. Pocky Whelan, who has been on our show many times, is quoted in the Gazette. She says, here's one of the biggest defense contractors in the country, and this country of ours is all about making war, Whelan said. My hope is that by exposing these people who are making money from war, they could convert and use all this brilliance they have, all this great technology for the planet and for the people. I love Pocky. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't quite see how... L3 Harris, which is a defense contractor, is going to do anything more or less than respond to the Navy's request for the material and technology that has been ordered by the Navy. I don't really think L3 Harris is an independent contractor, so to speak, here. They can accept the contracts or not accept the contracts, mm -hmm. and if L3 Harris doesn't do it, another defense contractor will. That's reality, it seems to me. I mean, I understand the big picture that is being exposed here or being focused on here, but L3 Harris is not going to give up its main business of right. being a defense contractor. And protesters had said that they don't want people to lose their jobs. They just want them to sell to other people. I don't think that there's another big market out there. They're going to make the same money that they are with the contract. Right. So I don't see that happening. There is a lovely picture, I must say, of Pocky in the boat. Uh, at the entrance, the blocking us. Pocky Whelan and Priscilla Lynch, also has been on the show many times, were among two dozen protesters who blocked the entrance to L3 Harris Technologies with boats and trailers. Thursday morning, the two women were chained together as part of the protest, which lasted at least six hours and led to the arrest of at least five people. Mm. They were arraigned in court this morning, as I understand it. The arraignment was scheduled for 8.30, and which is why none of them could be with us on the show this morning. But... I think this story will go on. It's one of the uh, one of the consequences of civil disobedience. Is there's a court case, and well, there'll be more coverage. Isn't it just a slap on the hand, though? Really, for that we, we're asking the lawyer. Uh, we're asking the lawyer. Yes, yeah. on that one. Yeah, uh, ask the lawyer. I got it. I, here, here's here's the story. It's uh, trespass is not a major crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, that said, it is a crime. It is prosecuted like a, a crime. It could be converted to a civil infraction, actually, because the prosecution has the authority to do that. Mm -hmm. It can convert the criminal charge of a misdemeanor to a civil infraction. Uh, but the protesters may or may not want to take that. As I understand it, the protesters uh, who have been charged spent the night in jail, uh, presumably not seeking bail to be released immediately. So they're very serious about this protest and took that consequence mm -hmm. of spending a night in jail. 
You know, I, when this story, uh, I guess, happened yesterday, I was a little surprised that we have arms contractors in this area. Like, I, I didn't think there were any big companies that did these type of contracts in this area. I just, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised by that. But I was, Bill. Do you want to? Well, L3 Harris has been here a long time. Hey. Had a, had a, I'm sorry. I'm Where are they located? Up on Hospital Hill. Uh, uh, it's Village Hill, just across, uh, on Route 66. Oh. With a beautiful view of the valley. Now you know. Now I know. Just, I have no just idea. Just look for the boats. I'm trying to remember the name. L3 Harris had another name for many years before it was changed. Mm. It had a corporate name change. I, I, what is, I think, of... Uh, significance here is the escalation of which Dan pointed to, which is it's not just a protest. There have been protests at L3 Harris for many, many years, but this is the first time I recall civil disobedience being uh, invoked mm -hmm. and being uh, and that having that kind of participation. And there was a rally, of course, called for a Thursday afternoon, five o'clock, not for people to become involved in the civil disobedience or the arrest, but to express their uh, dismay at L3 Harris for what it does. You know, yes, it is in some ways a bit odd that a defense contractor has a major uh, plant here in Northampton. At the same time, uh, Springfield has one of the major gun manufacturers and has for years, and that uh, now it, it's left in mm -hmm. part. It's gone to Tennessee. Smith Tennessee. Wesson yeah. has moved a significant part of its operations, but Still about 1,000 employees left in Springfield. And Western Massachusetts is not immune from the economics of the country writ large. And we have a lot of talented people in a workforce here, and businesses want to be here. Not unusual, I wouldn't think. I also thought it was unusual, too, that L3 Harris, from what I was reading, they manufacture parts for, like, submarines and boats, telescopes, that kind of thing. Uh, so I would think more a gun manufacturer would have more of a protest than parts for a submarine. I understand they're still contracting through the government and it's being used for, but it's not like AK-47s, I guess, in my head is how I'm thinking of it. Right. It's a step removed. Mm -hmm. and But it is the defense contractor we have here. So if you want to protest war in the military-industrial complex, that's the place to go. Yeah. I wonder whether or not, and we'll ask the protesters and we'll certainly have them on the show, what they think has been accomplished, which is always the question. I was just thinking of that. What is the goal there? Well, I think one thing that's accomplished maybe for them is what you just said. You hadn't realized that there was a defense contractor right in Northampton. Mm. So that maybe the publicity where more people will realize that this is going on here in the city that didn't know. Will draw attention to it. Yeah. yeah. We had Nick Motern on the show yesterday, and he is quoted in the Gazette, so let me share that. Nick Motern, a spokesperson for Demilitarized Western Mass, said the company would be better off providing technology to support issues such as averting natural disasters caused by climate change and that its current operations stood for many of the things the organization is against. Quote, this place brings together many concerns about war, about racism, about quote unquote border security, Motern said. The company is really standing in the way of progress and basically human rights. Interesting. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your destiny. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. 
At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods or social studies into the community working for food justice. They connect with students worldwide with the Model UN. Hartsbrook students cultivate an unwavering sense they can take action in the world and handle adversity. This Thursday, experience the Hartsbrook School with the Hartsbrook School's Community Evening. Meet current Hartsbrook parents. Explore the school. Thinking about high schools, the Community Evening isn't for students. It's for parents, grandparents, and family friends. All are welcome. Sign up at the Hartsbrook Facebook page. The Hartsbrook School Community Evening. This Thursday, 6 to 8.30. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the show Larry Hott, Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, who is with us for a segment that we like to call Cool Films with Larry Hott. So, Mr. Hott, you have some films for us today I am really excited to hear about. And I think for those of our listeners who have not been with us recently when you've been talking about why you've been reviewing documentary films, tell us about the Academy Awards and what you're doing, and then we'll get to the two films you want to recommend for our listeners today. Larry. Well, I have the privilege of being on the committee, or the virtual committee, for the Academy Awards for documentaries, both short and long. But that also allows me to watch every single film submitted for the Academy Awards and to vote on them once they get nominated. Uh, We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of films. So uh, you might question, why would somebody put so much time into that? And the reason I do that is so I have something to say on this radio show. (laughs) Well, I remember back in the day when the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts Arts and and Sciences. Sciences, used to send... Uh, CDs, right? Yes, uh, and they, before DVDs. that it was VHS tapes, and before that people would come to your house and act out the film. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to swear that you would not show this to anybody else in the world. You had to write a statement, I swear, no one else will ever That's see right. this besides me. And you had me. to destroy them. You had to destroy them. So um, I frequently did not give them to my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Despite people who would importune you to do so. I still, I still have but you vote. But you vote. I vote. I get, I get to vote, yeah. Uh, and uh, then there's many rounds of voting. It takes months. They start sending me the, the, the links to the films. They have actually a Academy Screening Room page on the website, and they uh, assign me certain films, 
And there's a committee that votes and moves those films up the ladder, and eventually they get to the nominees. So there's 15 films that become uh, the, the finalists, and then we vote on those. And when you watch the Academy Awards, do you root for the films that you voted for to be the finalists and or to win? I mean, do you want? Are you looking for vindication? Oh, absolutely! I, I want I want the good films to win. And yeah, but do you want the films that you thought were the I good picked, films? But I pick. I do keep a list. Ah. Uh, it's like double double entry accounting. I have <laughs> <laughs> I have my list and I have the I have the real list. You have their list, right? Uh, but I have a list going back many many years. Uh, and sometimes people ask me for recommendations, and I can go and say this is what won, but I think this is what what should have won. And it's hubris. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we're yeah. uh, focusing yeah. on the uh, issue of, of ego, yeah. uh, do your films, the films that you voted for, often win? What's your What's your record? I oh, mean, we're, uh, we're here in the World I, Series. I, we're all, okay. all, the, yeah. all the teams that shouldn't win. One hundred percent. I'm batting about uh, three sixty. Um, <laughs> but but I score the films. Uh, they score them on a, la- a rate um, of one to ten, and uh, I usually pick. My favorites will be um, the at least five of those uh, will get nominated. I mean, what I'm saying is, out of the fifteen, five get nominated, and at least two or three that I have said should be nominated will get nominated. And some of them don't make it at all, even to the top fifteen. But that's the arbitrary nature of film festivals and judging in in general. The really terrible films, the ones that couldn't even be competitive, they don't make it anywhere. But it's, it's really subjective. It's what the, the filmmakers feel is most important. And unfortunately, sometimes it all depends on, on the current politics. And depends on the topic for that year. I mean, well, yeah, uh, content is king. Yeah. So you could have a film that doesn't rise above the subject matter, sort of a pedestrian view of it. But you can have a film that takes something that is in the zeitgeist and then elevates it to something that is uh, art. Uh, and that you say, oh, anybody who doesn't, even if they don't care about this subject, they would like the film. Right. I remember talking with you on this show about mm-hmm. birds, about birds, a film about birds. And, right. Uh, a film about uh, two brothers who, who were protecting birds in India. But that actually became, it is a, in a way a very political film. They had very little money. They were living, living in poverty. And the pollution in, the, in that city was so terrible that the birds were literally falling out of the sky. So it was a, a social issue film even if you think it was a uh, environmental film or a film about birds. So are we apt to see more documentaries in next year's Academy Awards about war, about those major geopolitical issues that are so prevalent? Well, there is a lag time because it takes so long to make the films Ah. to get the funding. Um, So sometimes these things stay relevant for a very long time. Uh, Like one of the films, I have two films today that are not ostensibly... Not, a, a not upfront political films, but they are, I mentioned the word zeitgeist. One of these films actually is produced by a company called Zeitgeist Films, and they even, people in the film keep talking about the zeitgeist. <coughs> so it's the most <coughs> excuse me, appropriate film for that. Um, so I'm going to interview two films that are some way connected this morning. Okay, let's go. Um, one of them is Little Richard, I Am Everything. <laughs> Little Richard, our Little Richard from our youth. The musician, that uh, little Richard? Well, if you call him our little Richard, you're saying a lot there. I think we should hear a clip from this film and you get a sense of what it's about. It's just like a shot out of a cannon. His voice? The... My God, who is that? He created the rock and roll icon. Sorry, y'all. It wasn't Elvis. 
am the king of rock and roll. The first songs that you love that your parents hate is the beginning of the soundtrack of your life. <laughs> Little Richard's lyrics were too lewd to get airplay on the radio. They was not that dirty. They were just as clean as you were. <laughs> the South is the home of all things queer. They called him a sissy, a punk. I was not supposed to be the hero for their kids. Little Richard has an incredible string of hits. And so what they did was they said, we're going to put the white bucks on it. Shut up! The legacy of Little Richard is complex. Did you know that Elvis Presley and Pat Boone sold more of Tutti Frutti than I did? That's a great line to go out on. <laughs> Pat Boone singing Tutti Frutti. Pat Boone <laughs> sat, sang Tutti Frutti? In wearing a sweater vest and a tie. <laughs> and one of the things that Little Richard complains about in this film is that Pat Boone sold more copies of Tutti Frutti than Little Richard did. That seems unbelievable. One of the big takeaways from this film is they do a section on the original lyrics to Tutti Frutti. Um, which we may or may not be able now, to hear was, on I could say a couple, Tutti Frutti, Nice Booty was the really way it actually started out. And Tutti Frutti... Uh, we could talk around what it what they said. It was about it's very far around. We okay. like these jobs. It was about sex with men, okay, and ah, it, was, it was very graphic, which was prohibited. The, the, uh, yes, to, which not only was illegal at the time, was certainly prohibited yeah. to talk about on the airwaves. Yeah, but poor little Richard was thrown out of his house uh, by his his conservative father, who was uh, also a bootlegger. But they threw him out because he was gay, and little Richard uh, is so. And was this widely? No, no it's no. widely, it's, it's actually, it's one of the things that everybody knew at the time, because if you see, when you see these images of Little Richard, uh, just take Liberace and multiply him 20 times, make him black with better clothing and better taste. Little Richard performed uh, on the drag circuit as, as a young man. He became famous right away just for being so good and be, for being so femme. Uh, and he he was out and out gay. He he was proud of the orgies he took part in, and all this. I you know how, when we were kids. So do you know anything about what was going on with Little Richard? No, I just knew it was great music it, it, and, and and an incredible beat, incredible energy. And he knew it too. In fact, one of the best lines I heard from him and on, on one of the talk shows in this film is, "I'm not conceited." I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> Did he manage to stay out of jail? Uh, yeah, for the most part. For the most part. He got arrested a, a couple of times for, lo for lewd behavior. Uh, this, he's full of contradictions. At one point, at the height of his career, he quits. And he goes, to, he goes to college to become a minister. And for four years, he studies the Bible and he renounces homosexuality. And he actually goes on television and he makes he still comes up with that line of uh, you know not not it's uh, Adam and Eve not Steve and Steve he's one of the people who says that early on no yeah this is disappointing and then he to goes, say the least then he goes right back to his lifestyle because he runs out of money and uh, what uh, let me just tell you a couple of fun things that you see in this film what's the title of this film the film, film is Little Richard I am <clears throat> excuse me I am everything um, there is a competing film out of Britain called uh, Little Richard, King of Queen, no, King and Queen of Rock and Roll, right? Making the point right off the bat that, he, that he's uh, not only bi, but that, that his story is bi. So Little Richard 
is a for those of our listeners who were not part of this era or alive then was someone who competed with Elvis and others as the oh uh, he is so angry at Elvis in this in this film really yeah he basically al- along with a few others names that you probably would recognize like Ray Charles and BB King invented rock and roll and he is very angry and so are his supporters at Pat Boone getting any credit for this or even the Beatles. In fact, the story goes in this film that Little Richard is performing in Britain, uh, meets Brian Epstein. He invites him, the manager, Brian, for, the the manager the for the Beatles. This is in 62. And he, Little Richard, has a gig in Germany and takes the Beatles to that club, that famous club where they start, where Pete Best at that time is the drummer. Best of the Beatles, if you remember that. I do remember. And... Paul McCartney. That, that for those who were not there, who preceded Ringo Starr as the drummer for right, the Beatles, and essentially was thrown out. He was thrown out, and but he did try to make it by having albums called Best of the Beatles. Right, <laughs> which the recordings with him as the drummer. Right, which didn't work. What do, what's the songs that uh, the Beatles started out with? She Loves You? No, 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 no. <laughs> they, it's, um, oh, 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 when the, you mean with, with the rock and roll and, rock and, and the Hamburg Club? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, they're, they're re, they are covering... Little Richard songs. And in the film, Paul McCartney credits Little Richard with his with being the inspiration for the Beatles sound, the original Beatles sound. And then they have clips of Paul McCartney singing Little Richard songs, right? On the Beatles on stage in the United States. So, so I think Little Richard has a point. And he finally, finally gets the recognition that he deserves um, from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, and the Grammys very late in life. Uh, I want to say one other thing about how much fun this film is. The key interview in the film is John Waters. The, who? John Waters. John Waters is the director who became famous for Pink Flamingos, Hairspray, and on and on. He always has, or he sports is the word, a pencil mustache, and so does Little Richard. And he says, this is homage to Little Richard. Do you ever find out in the film why Little Richard is called Little Richard? Well, he was little. Uh, and his name was Richard. Uh, <laughs> and it's simply that. It's simply that. And this is the time we remind our our listeners that this show comes to you free. <laughs> and, and live. <laughs> um, go ahead. Is, does the story of Little Richard have a happy ending? I mean, you've told us about some of the uh, uh, various paths he went down. But I would say it does have a happy ending because he gets his due. It takes him a long time. Uh, and he he lives out you know to a fairly fairly old age. He was born in 1932 and dies in the I think in the early 2000s. Um, but uh, he had a lot of trouble. He 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 married on you know social pressure after he went to Bible school. Then then that didn't last. Um, he had to support his entire family, uh, and that was one of his motivations to going back to work. He had six brothers and sisters and moved his mother out to California. And then there was pressure on him to go back to work. And then he could not, he could not suppress himself. He was, he was an outlandish gay man and at times proud of it. So this, he's full of contradictions. He really was the, the king and queen of rock and roll. Who signed him to record contracts? Well, that's a big issue in, in the film. He's, he, the, the, like, I, if you know a little bit about the history, particularly of black artists in rock and roll, they were ripped off by the studios. All the time. And he signed a contract, he admitted, without reading it, which did not give him 
rights to a lot of his music or gave him pennies on the dollar. So while uh, people like Pat Boone and Paul McCartney were making money off of his records, he was only getting paid a pittance. The title of the film? The title of the film was Little Richard, I Am Everything. It is energetic from the first moment. You, you cannot stop watching it. And it's available. It was made, produced, paid for by CNN. Uh, so you can go to the CNN website, but it's also on all the usual uh, pl- platforms like Amazon and Apple. Back with more cool films with Larry Hott right after this. I'm Little Richard, wishing you plenty of tuna fruity cake for Christmas. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A candidate's forum for those running for the Amherst School Committee is now rescheduled for next Wednesday. The forum, which was supposed to take place last night, is sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Amherst, who moved the meeting to October 18th and moved it from the middle school to the high school auditorium. Candidates running for Jones Library trustees will take the stage first at 7 p.m., with school committee candidates scheduled for 8 p.m. Activists blocked the entrance to the L3 Harris Technologies building in Northampton early yesterday morning to protest the company's military contracts. The activists chained themselves to a boat that was left at the entrance to the building. The activists are not calling for the closure of L3 Harris, though, just a change in the business's clientele. Nick Modern from activist group Demilitarize Western Massachusetts helped organize the protest. We don't want people to lose their jobs. We want L3 Harris to convert to making things that are supporting of life rather than death. L3 Harris is the sixth largest military contractor in the U.S. Massachusetts police are pursuing assault and battery and disorderly conduct charges against three Rhode Island men in the recent death of a fan at a New England Patriots game. The Foxborough Police Department said Thursday it was going to court to seek charges against the men in the September 17th altercation at Gillette Stadium that preceded the death of 53-year-old Dale Mooney of Newmarket, New Hampshire. Police didn't name the men. Mooney was punched at least twice in the head during an altercation with other fans. Sun-cloud combination today continued relatively mild, a high of 64 to 68. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Much cooler tomorrow, partly to mostly sunny and a high of 58 to 62. Most of the weekend looks dry. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th. Be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan. Subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? 
You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Okay, Larry Hot on our Cool Films with Larry Hot segment. We were listening to Little Richard and Tutti Frutti because... Oh, I just want to correct uh, the lyrics that we were just hearing. Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, that's not the original lyrics. I think we could say <laughs> it was it was Tutti Frutti, nice booty is the original <laughs> lyric. So you get an idea of how things changed. So the next film up here, and I highly recommend another film, is called Desperate Souls, Dark City, and the Legend of Midnight Cowboy. Okay, Midnight Cowboy is? Midnight Cowboy is a 1969 movie starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight, directed by John Schlesinger. Uh, it is produced by a major company called Zeitgeist Films, and this is the most perfect film for them because somebody, every interview, after every interviewee in the film uses the word Zeitgeist, which means the spirit of the times. It is a, it's not dated, I mean, the film's still a great film to watch. But I it watched could, it not it, too long ago. It could, only, it could only have been made in 1969. This is a period uh, directly after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, five years after the assassination of John Kennedy, at the absolute height of the, the Vietnam War, uh, right after the Tet Offensive, uh, which is referenced, all these things are referenced over and over again in the film, trying to explain why the film was so different, how it got to the screens, it was originally rated X. That, that X rating was taken off 20 years later. Uh, the film is really about... X rated, meaning that... T you had to have, be an adult to see it. Uh, not rated R. Uh, no recommendations and no, no warnings to the parents. X it's as in X. don't go don't X. Go. It wasn't triple X. It, it wasn't porn, but it was that we want you to know there's certain things in this movie that, you, that children shouldn't see. And you know what it was? It was no explicit sex in the film. It was the homoerotic relationship between Ratso Rizzo and Joe Buck, the cowboy, if you remember the film. Uh, let's hear a clip from the film. You get a sense of what this film's all about. I'm very self-conscious right now because I want to say something perfect and, and poetic and beautiful. And I, I, and, and, I, and I just know that this picture... Hey, I'm walking here! I'm walking here! He didn't make the movie to crusade about anything uh, at all. He made the movie because he saw something in the culture that was great to take pictures of. Nobody had seen those images and those midnight cowboys on 42nd Everybody's Street. Talking at me. I don't hear word to say was the very first movie that I ever saw that was a picture of New York that really looked like New York. It didn't look like Easter Parade and Judy Garland was going to come down singing. It looked as scuzzy and dirty as any other part of New York. He was fascinated by America, by New York, by the drama of urban America. No matter what 
Joe Buck's particular delusions might be, the cowboy theme hustler is a very, very gay thing. The winner is Midnight Cowboy. I'm not even sure why it got an X. If I'm going to America to make a movie, this is the movie I'd like to make. The voice you were just hearing was John Schlesinger, uh, the British gay Jewish director uh, who was suppressed, one of those kids who went to boarding school. And like a lot of people in his class and of his era, uh, they could not express themselves uh, in society openly. And they come to the United States as artists where they can do that. And he gets the script and he loves it. Um, it's also a movie about poverty. It's a movie about underclass. It's a movie about sexuality. It's a movie about exploitation of poor people by, yes, and by it's the also, very rich. And it's also very much a movie about the American cowboy image and how it's contrast with the reality. And John Voight comes from Texas to New York City where he plays a cowboy. He's never been a cowboy but he's always wearing a cowboy shirt, cowboy hat, cowboy boots. And he's Mr. Macho, but what is he doing? He's hustling women for money when what he really wants to do is be with men. And he's befriended by John uh, Dustin Hoffman character, Ratso Rizzo, who's a down-and-out uh, man with a, a bad limp, uh, unshaven. Living in a oh, abject condemned poverty. building. Right, where there's, where there's no heat. He says... When they first get there, he says to uh, Joe Buck, the John Boyd character, well, uh, there's no heat, but it doesn't matter because we're going to be gone and we're going to go to Florida for the winter. And if you remember anything about the film, it's this escape to Florida. Um, it's really it's saying you really can't escape yourself. You can't get away from yourself. Uh, there's so many memorable scenes in this film. There is, we should note, and for those who will be watching this film about a film, there's a very violent scene. There are, there are very violent scenes, but it's not... The, the documentary itself it does not contain a lot of, of violence. But I wanted to mention the book that the documentary is based on. So it's called... The film is called Desperate Souls, Dark City, and the Legend of Midnight Cowboy. But the book that's based on is Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic by Glenn Frankel. Uh, actually, I think that title of the book sums up what's going on in the film a lot better. Uh, one of the key moments in the, in the film, and a key scene they keep coming back to, are is Apocalypse Now and then John Wayne in True Grit. And they're making the point here of what was going on in the, in the cinema, in the zeitgeist of Hollywood at the time. And the, it's really becomes sort of sardonic when they talk about the big budget films that are making Hello, Dolly, Paint Your Wagon, these Hollywood musicals. At the same time, this little $3 million movie gets nominated for an Academy Award and it wins Best Picture at the, in the, same, at the same time that John Wayne wins Best Actor with True Grit, a Western. And of course, what Midnight Cowboy is about is that Western image coming to New York City, right? With that haunting song, you know, everybody's talking, um, which is beautifully done. And I want to say a word about how they open this film. They open this film with the opening of Midnight Cowboy, and the credits for the documentary are playing over 
an entirely different film. Not the documentary, but the original film. And that's, it's, a, it's a brilliant way to say, we love this film, but we're making our own version of it. Available where? This film is on um, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and Vudu, V-U-D-U. And again, the title is? The title is Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hot on Talk the Talk. Well, there's many a strange impulse out on the plains of West Texas. There's many a young boy who feels things he can't comprehend. And a small town don't like it when somebody falls between sexes. No small town don't like it when a cowboy has feelings. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. The beat goes on. Drums keep... And this is Artbeat with Donabel Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabel Cassis, the microphone is yours. Good morning on this beautiful Friday. There's an exciting opening happening at the Springfield Museums tomorrow. It's called As They Saw It, Women Artists Then and Now, which is a fantastic exhibit of 60 plus works 
that celebrate three centuries of vision and creativity by women artists. And this exhibit is part of the Art Bridges Initiative, which is an exhibition that is co-curated by women at the Springfield Museums, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and the Fenimore Art Museum. And here today to share more information is co-curator of the exhibit, Maggie North. Please welcome Maggie. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Donna Bell. It's a pleasure to be here and the timing is fantastic. We unveil this exhibition tomorrow and we're so excited for our visitors to see it. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I hear that this show has been in the works for several years. So how cool is it to finally see it up? And now my understanding, it's about women by women and curated by women. Could you tell us a little bit about how your sort of spanning three centuries of this work in this one exhibit. Yes, so this is an exhibition that brings together artworks which are pulled from the Springfield Museum's collection, the v Museum of Fine Arts Boston, and the Fenimore Art Museum. And it's an exhibition that was really born out of a partnership among these museums that aim to expand access to our collections, to bring works out of storage, and to display them in a new context. And it just so happened that the curators who were brought together from these various museums, we were all women. And we all acknowledged that despite the great strides that women have made across art history throughout time, women's artwork remains underrepresented in museums and exhibitions. It's very rare actually to walk into a museum setting and be surrounded by works of art uh, by women artists, whereas it's not so rare to walk into a museum and to be surrounded by works uh, sometimes great works by male artists. But we thought that this was really a fantastic opportunity to bring the creativity and vision, as you said, of American artists to light. And our collections in these museums really spanned the 19th, 20th, and 21st century. So rather than honing in on a specific time period, we thought we would find commonalities amongst works by diverse artists from across historical time periods. And I saw some of the image, uh, images and you really do span all different type of media, which is really wonderful because it's not just all painting and it's not just sculpture. There are varied works. Can you describe some of the things people will get to see when they go in? Yes, and again, this variety is informed by the variety in the collections. So you'll see um, self-portraits that are painted, but maybe they're mixed media and there are sculpture. You'll see works by women artists of other women in their communities. You'll see works of art by women who are working in collaboration with one another, sometimes in textiles, sometimes in story quilts or ceramics. Um, and in addition, I think that this exhibition is is really enriched by some fantastic works of art from the Fenimore Art Museum's Thaw Collection, which is a collection of Native American pieces. And so even though the works of art in this exhibition are, are broadly American, there's great diversity across um, the works of art that are represented. And as you say, many, many different types of media. And the exhibit is actually organized thematically rather than chronologically. So in the first mm. section, 
self-portraits, ideas about representation in the second section, uh, exploring ideas about community and sisterhood, and in the third section, exploring ideas about matrilineal um, and cross-generational relationships among women. Would you be kind enough to explain how the Springfield Museums, and you in particular as the curator, acquired these pieces to put them together in one exhibit? How does that happen? It's a great question. Many of the works that are on view in this exhibit were already in our collections, but may not have been on view in the permanent galleries. However, there are some important recent acquisitions that are on view in the exhibition. And these are acquisitions that come into the museum either through donation or purchase, but in alignment with collecting goals that we literally write out in a collections plan for ourselves so that uh, the goals can be executed in a thoughtful way as we're adding pieces to the collection. And, and really this exhibit speaks to the Springfield Museum's initiative to broaden our collection. We realize that we're lacking diversity. Um, in the Demore Museum of Fine Arts, less than 5% of artworks are by women artists and fewer are by artists of color. And so acknowledging that this exhibition is, is just one step. It's one small step in making our collections more representative, more accessible, and frankly, more interesting to the folks who come through the galleries. Absolutely. Um, so said, a couple of new works in the exhibit as well. I mean, diversity just makes it that much more broad in terms of interests and identities. And and I'm and you know I'm fascinated that you're showing several dis different aspects of the identities of these artists. You know, like the social, economic, and cultural barriers that they uh, endured, and despite that, they're still able to create these exceptional works. And um, I know you've, or the Springfield Museums had recently purchased, um, was it a Faith Ringgold piece? Um, there's That's some right. beautiful, beautiful works in there. Now, this, this show is called As They Saw It, Women Artists Then and Now, and I know the opening is tomorrow. Can you give us some more information about that? Yes, so the exhibit opens tomorrow. Anybody can come to see the show. We're not having a formal party for the exhibition opening, but there will be a talk uh, at 12.15 on October 19th, which is next Thursday, that I'm giving alongside one of my co-curators. And this is an opportunity for those who are interested to learn even more about the exhibition, about museum collections, and about the behind the scenes, how this came together. Now, what, um, could, could I interrupt for one second? Let me interrupt for one oh. second. What was the initial inspiration for this? The initial inspiration for this really was the partnership that Donabelle described at the beginning of our segment, which is supported by Art Bridges, an organization that sort of aims to pull works of art out of storage to make them more broadly accessible to people. Um, and when the three museums came together, we thought about a lot of different themes that we could explore in this exhibition, but we were really compelled by the works of art by women in our collections, which hadn't been on view for a long period of time, or perhaps hadn't been on view in this context altogether, uh, where they could find juxtaposition or collaboration or communication uh, in conversation with one another in the galleries. 
Now, is there one piece quickly that you find to be the most exciting as you walk in through this, this gallery space? Oh my goodness, it is so hard to choose one, but I'll talk to you about one of my favorite uh, sort of pairings in the exhibition, which is in the first section of the show, which is called I and Myself, where ideas about identity, women representing one another and representing themselves are displayed. Um, and this is a, a wall where you can see a wonderful large story quilt called Black Barbie by Kira Hicks, uh, which reinvents the stereotype of the Barbie doll. And another piece called Ara Lucia by Cara Ramiro, an indigenous artist who reinvents the archetype of the Wonder Woman for indigenous peoples. You know, here, here for more representation of women and also non-binary artists in museums and collections. And I'm so excited that this show is up. Um, Maggie North, former cur curator of art at the Springfield Museum, but coming back to really bring this show to life. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please check it out. It's at the Demore Museum of Fine Arts in Springfield. And thank, thank you, Donabelle. Yes, thank you, Donabelle. And thank you, Maggie North, for bringing this to our community. What an exciting exhibit. I'm just so excited about this. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you both so very much. This has been Artbeat on Talk the Talk. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today, and we welcome to our show Azana Shrawi Hutchinson, who is the Director of Development and Expansion for the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, a Washington, D.C.-based organization. We so appreciate you being with us today. I would appreciate it if you would tell our listeners, please, Azana Shrawi Hutchinson, what the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee is, Washington, D.C. based, but what it, what it is, what's its reason for being, how long it has been an organization, and what kind of organization it is. And then I want to ask you about your very personal involvement with this war ongoing between Hamas and Israel. Let's start with the Arab American Anti-Discrimination uh, Committee. What is it? Thank you so much for having me, Bill. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on with you um, and for providing the space for this conversation. It's really important given the circumstances. Uh, ADC is a civil rights organization. It defends the rights of people of Arab descent and promoting um, our culture here in the United States. It was founded by uh, Senator James Abu Rizik in the 1980s. 
Um, it's uh, the largest Arab American grassroots organization in the United States that defends and promotes human rights and civil rights and liberties, combats stereotypes and discrimination against um, Arab American communities in the United States, serves as a public voice for the Arab American community and educates American public in order to promote greater understanding of Arab history and culture, and of course advances the cause for transnational social justice with communities of color and oppressed people domestically and internationally. Um, as for my personal, sorry, uh, uh, my personal connection to this, I am Palestinian born and raised. I was born in Jerusalem, raised in Ramallah. My, uh, both my parents are still there. My father-in-law is there. Um, my family is their friends, of course. Uh, I was, I came to the United States for school and then was exiled from Palestine. And now I live in Northern Virginia. So this is very personal to me. It's not just a position that I hold. Um, it is a, a very personal uh, situation, emotional. Uh, so I will be discussing this both from a political and activist perspective, but also from a very human, personal perspective. I appreciate that. I am looking at the ADC statement uh, issued at the beginning of the war, uh, ADC, ADC statement on Palestinian resistance is the title. And it's not long, so I'd like to read it to you and read it to our listeners. Dateline, Washington, D.C., October 7th, 2023. The unprecedented and ongoing resistance by Palestinians from Gaza that caught Israel by surprise did not happen in a vacuum. This is the response of a people pushed beyond endurance. For decades, Israel has been perpetrating unspeakable crimes against humanity, collective punishment, and has sustained an open-air prison for Palestinians in the blockaded Gaza Strip. It has allowed for the relentless and daily attacks by Jewish settlers on Palestinian towns and cities and the desecration of holy sites. Two more sentences. Palestinian families have been mercilessly torn apart and a generation of Palestinians have grown up in the grip of violent oppression by an occupying force to overlook or minimize these facts is to lack depth in understanding and compromise moral clarity. Palestinians are asserting their right to self-determination and unequivocally demanding their freedom. Never underestimate the will of an oppressed and occupied people to be free. That was the statement of the anti, uh, uh, anti. I'm sorry about. Uh, that was the statement of the Arab American Anti Discrimination Committee uh, on the day of the uh, beginning of the hostilities between Hamas and Israel. It does not in any way condemn what Hamas did, which was to many of us, horrifying. Whatever one's feelings about the, uh, the people and the mistreatment of persons living in Gaza, decapitations, killing of children, old people, uh, taking hostages, I mean, it was horrifying. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that that are not part of this statement. Thank you for, for setting us up, Bill, and for reading the statement. I think it's extremely important that you read it. Um, we stand behind it. Uh, there's multiple different facets. And in fact, you answered your own question by reading it because number one, uh, yesterday, or I'm not sure when it was the interview that you had the, the rabbi on, 
when you talked to her and with the introduction, you didn't ask her to condemn the, you know, the atrocities that Israel has been committing on the Palestinian people. Um, you didn't ask her to condemn the, the hundreds and thousands that have been killed over the years in Gaza by indiscriminate Israeli bombardment. You didn't ask her or anybody else that you've had to, to condemn actions that have been done by Israel towards the Palestinian people, where hundreds of thousands have been killed, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, not hundreds of thousands, millions displaced. Um, and living under a brutal occupation and apartheid system where for 16 years people in the Gaza Strip have been living under uh, a brutal blockade where food is rationed by Israel and, and prevented by Israel. 70% of Gazans are refugees from historic Palestine, which is now Israel. According to UNRWA, there's 81.5% of individuals in Gaza live below the national poverty line. 64% are food insecure. Um, uh, unemployment rate as of 2021 stood at 47% with the overall youth unemployment rate at 64%. Uh, I mean, I can go on with the statistics, but what is extremely important here is the dehumanization of the Palestinian people in our plight over many years and the assumption that this just started and the expectation that Palestinians are supposed to um, um, explain themselves continuously when they are the ones under occupation, they are the ones that are brutalized. You know, uh, a Palestinian spokesperson once said, we are the only people on earth, Palestinians that is, are the only people on earth asked to guarantee the security of our occupier, while Israel is the only country that calls for the defense from its victims. Now, I'm not condemning or condoning, I mean, I'm not saying that, um, let, me, let me say this, the killing of innocent civilians is abhorrent, which includes the killing of Palestinian civilians. Uh, this, what happened uh, uh, at the beginning uh, on October 7th, did not happen in a vacuum, as the statement says. Um, and another thing I want to point out, part of the dehumanization narrative that you started your presentation with is the complete lack of investigative reporting as it relates to this, the, what you mentioned. There, uh, journalists have taken back the statements that there have been decapitated babies. This is not factual. Even the president and the president's office retracted that statements. Multiple offices retracted that statements. So the fact that even we're perpetuating this Israeli uh, military narrative to continuously dehumanize the Palestinian population, which they've been doing for over 75 years of settler colonialism in Palestine, is part of the root problem, part of the root causes of this issue where Palestinians don't have the space to discuss and Palestinians are continuously asked to provide security and condemn their self-defense. We are speaking with Zain Ashrawi Hutchinson, who is the Director of Development and Expansion for the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee based in Washington, D.C. I do want to ask you about a particular aspect of this conflict, and that has to do with Hamas's view of who are legitimate targets in a war. Because as I understand Hamas's position, it's all Israeli settlers are soldiers, and therefore all soldiers are legitimate targets for a military response. Is that correct, and do you support that position of Hamas? Thanks for that question, Bill. Quite frankly, I'm neither a Hamas spokesperson, and I'm uh, number one, and number two, I'm not here to discuss uh, uh, Israel's perspective on things or how Hamas views things. I'm here to talk about the Palestinian people. I'm here to talk about the over uh, 1,700 Palestinian civilians that have been butchered in Gaza right now. There's a genocide happening where uh, buildings are being demolished on top of civilians, 
with no aid, electricity being cut off, uh, food and water cut off, uh, uh, hospitals are completely out of medicines. There is a quite death tone right now with the question in and of itself, the erasure and dehumanization of what I am explaining, Bill, is mind boggling to me. When I'm literally explaining that there are over 300,000 Palestinians currently being internally displaced and butchered and multiple, multiple sources are saying that this will continue with a ground invasion with complete indiscriminate uh, genocide on the Palestinian people. And uh, again, I am being asked to discuss or explain Hamas's position. Hamas is a faction. Israel is one of the most powerful countries in the world, and it is getting support from the United States and Western governments. I don't understand here the juxtaposition of the two and, and ex expecting a human rights activist to explain Hamas's position. I am here to discuss Palestinian people and our plight for freedom and justice. Let us talk about here in a second, why aren't we condemning Israel's murder of 1,750 plus who are still being removed from the rubble with 500 Palestinian children killed, confirmed killed so far. And um, doctors call it, saying that hospitals right now in Gaza are basically cemeteries if nothing is, is done. Bill, let me, let me say one more thing. Did you know that white phosphorus is being used on Gaza and Lebanon. Did you know that the that this is isn't just in in Gaza? It, it Israelis the Israeli military is has barricaded and blocked entrances and exits to Palestinian towns and cities. They have armed Israeli settlers all over the West Bank. Uh, uh, they were already armed, but they fortified their arms to 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 continue the attacks on Palestinian homes and land. This did not happen in a vacuum. Context is important and humanizing Palestinians is extremely important. Let's stop peddling Israeli military propaganda, please. Happening to the Palestinians in Gaza, and I would like to, and we did just for your information, we actually at the beginning of the program, at the beginning of this war, we talked about what the uh, statement was from the uh, Israeli military about cutting off all electricity and, and medicine and supplies and food to Gaza. We did do that, and we have criticized uh, on this show many, many times uh, how uh, Israel has responded to Palestinians, and so what you said in that regard is not totally accurate. That said, I would like to know what you see as the way in which uh, persons in Gaza uh, may be able to survive what is anticipated to be a uh, significant military invasion of Gaza by, uh, is, uh, by Israeli forces. How do I expect a captive people to survive? How do you, how do, how do you, they can't get out into, into Egypt. They are, they are essentially in an open air prison. So how, exactly. do, how, do, how do people survive? They don't, they try to do their best to move from houses, house to house. We have seen multiple families try to move from certain homes or certain areas where they think they are uh, uh, going to be bombed into areas where, you know, they, they with other family members and they are bombed there as well. This is indiscriminate, whether it's from the air or from the ground, whether they come in, uh, Israel 
continues the invasion on the ground or whether they continue their indiscriminate bombardment from the air. Uh, the expectation is not on Palestinians to survive. We are, you're, you're, I mean, the, the, the expectation here is for Palestinians to somehow find, you know, Israel is excused with what they're doing, but Palestinians are supposed to find a way to survive. How about we call on Israel to end the indiscriminate bombardment, to open the, uh, to end the blockade on Gaza, to allow humanitarian aid to, to, to flow in, uh, including medicine and, and food and water and electricity. This is how Palestinians in Gaza survive. It's not on Palestinians to, to find a way to survive. It's on Israel to stop killing Palestinians. Um, also, I want to comment on something. Israel is not responding. Israel is the aggressor in this situation. 75 years of settler colonialism, 50 plus years of indiscriminate occupation, 16 years of a blockade. And for, for, for the longest time, you don't have Palestinians on here talking about the 250 Palestinians that were killed before the October 7th event. It uh, the the largest number in, a, in you know since last year, 250 Palestinians killed by Israel, but nobody talks about this. Nobody talks about what only when there's an aggression, a massive aggression, uh, in Gaza, and even then people are expected to condemn or condone what Palestinians are doing versus hold Israel accountable. The problem here is Israel's impunity for many many years and continued the, 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 the murder and, and um, destruction of Palestinian homes, the theft of Palestinian lands, the continued, they continue to do it with impunity, without accountability, that is allowing the situation to further escalate. Let's address the root causes. Occupation, apartheid, and settler colonialism need to end in order for there to be safety and for Palestinians to, to stop being killed by Israel. You, you have said that you don't want to speak for Hamas, but Israel says that Hamas is the issue. And I understand you're not going to have that, that the discussion in depth, but if Hamas is going to continue to call for the destruction of the state of Israel um, and will, in fact, uh, engage in these actions which have been described in detail, uh, how do you separate... Uh, Hamas from what is happening in, in Gaza when they are the uh, political force and the military force in, in the Gaza Strip. Again, I encourage you to invite a member of Hamas to discuss Hamas's positions. Um, I am in no position to discuss Hamas's positions politically or, you know, uh, uh, their engagement with Israel. What I am, again, here to discuss is the Palestinian people's plight for freedom and self-determination. Uh, the fact that Hamas is currently ruling Gaza is not by, by complete accident. They've, they, there hasn't been, people haven't been able to have uh, elections in Gaza or in the West Bank due to the Israeli occupation and, and, the, and the siege of Gaza. So, I mean, to blame this on a faction when the real aggressor is the occupation and, and the blockade is, is not entirely accurate. Uh, in fact, it's peddling Israeli propaganda. To frame it as a war between Israel and Hamas is completely untrue. This is a war by Israel on Gaza. Uh, on Palestine, the, if it is on Hamas, it wouldn't be as indiscriminate. This has happened time and time again. Also, if Hamas is the problem, let's say Hamas is gone tomorrow. 
Do you think Israel would stop its siege on Gaza, would stop its occupation and the settler colonialism that exists? Hamas is a scapegoat in the grand scheme of things for, for Israel. So long as Hamas exists, they can blame everything, all their atrocities that are committed against the Palestinian people on Hamas, on a faction. But if Hamas goes tomorrow, there will still be an occupation, there will still be settler colonialism because that is the plan, that is the Israeli agenda. And that is the root cause of the issue here. We are speaking with Zaina Ashrawi Hutchinson, who is the Director of Development and Expansion for the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee based in Washington, D.C. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Zaina Shari Hutchinson, who is the Director of Development and Expansion for the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee based in Washington, D.C. You mentioned before that you still had family in Gaza. Are they safe? Thanks for asking. Actually, my family is in the West Bank. Um, and oh, currently okay. they yeah, no, no problem. Um, Palestine is is large and vast, so you know, and everybody's family in Palestine. So I appreciate the question. Um, we do have friends in Gaza, of course. So th there is that aspect of it. Um, my family is safe uh, as of now, with uh, Israeli settlers being armed. There is no saying um, what's going to happen next. Israelis, have, like I said, have blockaded um, Palestinian towns and cities and villages. So. Uh, we don't know, you know, what's going to happen in terms of food, in terms of water, in terms of um, electricity in the West Bank, because, you know, there has been very many instances where that happens. 
Um, currently, there are clashes, if you will. Israelis are, or Israeli military is attacking Palestinian um, Palestinians. There have been at least 33, if not more, right now, uh, Palestinians killed in the past couple of days in the West Bank. So, it, it's 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 pretty it's a pretty tough situation um, um, under occupation in the West Bank as well right now. But thanks for asking. I would like to ask about the big question, which you have uh, addressed, which is your perspective with regard to uh, the Isra Israel's uh, position and occupation with regard to uh, Gaza. I, I would like to know whether you think there is uh, any way to avoid a larger war here, because... Uh, Israel says we're not going to stop until Hamas is eradicated. And Hamas says we're not going to stop bombardment unless Israel stops the occupation. It seems to me it's the immovable object and the unstoppable force, and there is no way out. Is that how you see this? Absolutely not. Uh, resistance movements are a result of oppression, period. You end the oppression, you end apartheid, you end occupation, uh, there will not be resistance. This is, I mean, plain and simple. But this is an excuse, Bill, and I, like I said, we've used that before. And when we talk about war, it, it, it assumes, it gives the impression that there are two equal sides in this. Uh, which is completely untrue and completely uh, uh, misses the point that, uh, you know, again, Israel is one of the largest, uh, I mean, uh, largest military powers in the world. It is the only uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear power in the Middle East. Uh, so, and fighting against what they claim is a war is actually fighting against a faction. So, I mean, perspective is extremely important here. But let's talk about the larger uh, aspect of this. Many countries have said that the problem is the occupation. Human rights and, and, and apartheid, human rights organizations, both internationally, Palestinian and Israeli, have said that the problem is occupation and apartheid. And to completely, continuously ignore the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians killed, the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians displaced, and the millions, in fact, displaced, uh, uh, is, is, is mind-boggling to me. Because to keep going back to the same Israeli narrative to justify genocide against a captive population just by using the, the you know, this is, if it's a cycle of violence between Hamas and Israel. It isn't. It's an occupied versus an occupier. It's an occupation versus a, 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 an oppressed people. I, I, I do, Let's I, address the root causes. I, I, do, I do understand this perspective, and I certainly hope you feel like I've given you a lot of time to explain your position. I would like to know this. Uh, do you, uh, or does the uh, uh, Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee uh, recognize the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state or not? What does that mean? I mean, what what does Israel existing as a Jewish state mean? Does it mean that anybody within its borders is considered second class citizens? Would you accept that? No, of course. Would you accept no, to be? No, of course not. But I just want to do. Do, do you call for for uh, Jews to be expelled from Israel, or do you say that? Of course not. I okay. mean, 
of course not. This is an absurd okay. question. I mean, okay. Jews have lived in Palestine for centuries. This is not about Jews versus Muslims versus Palestinians versus Arabs. This has nothing to do with Jews versus something. This is an occupation uh, that has been in existence for 50 years. Palestinians and Jews, Palestinians, which are Christian and Muslim and, and everything else, uh, and Jews, by the way, historically, have lived for centuries together. It is the idea that a settler colonial entity has taken over and made it an exclusive uh, 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 state with, where people within it are either treated as second-class citizens or are occupied. That is the problem. And Palestinians, both in Palestine and across the world, Bill, have tried every form of resist, peaceful resistance there is. We have had peaceful demonstrations we have been, that have been shut down. We have tried writing in the media articles and news stories to explain what is happening. Oftentimes, they don't get accepted and, take, and, and published. We have tried uh, peaceful uh, uh, boycotts, which have historically been used in the United States. Bills are being passed to criminalize them. Bills are being passed to, here in the United States to silence us, for, silence us from even speaking about what Israel is doing uh, to Palestinian people. Uh, uh, teachers and professors are being kicked out of their universities for daring to stand with the Palestinian people or even educating about the truth in Palestine. So this isn't about, you know, uh, how can we make peace? There is a concerted effort to silence Palestinians. This is a concerted effort for, uh, to expect Palestinians to die quietly uh, and then continuously ask us to, you know, flip the narrative and ask us, how can we protect Israel? We are the ones that are occupied. It's not the other way around. We are the ones that our homes are being demolished, our children that are being taken away uh, in the middle of the night for decades now. Uh, into Israeli military prisons, tortured physically and mentally without any accountability for Israel. What do you expect the Palestinian people to do? We are second, those who live inside Israel, who are Palestinians who are living inside Israel from 1948, are living there as second class citizens. This is not, I mean, to, to perpetuate the narrative that this is about violence, about violence. Palestinians have tried for decades to resist and uh, uh, peacefully, but we are silenced there too. So the expectation that Palestinians either accept to die quietly or leave or accept their fate is unacceptable. It's dehumanizing and it needs to end. Uh, I, my question, uh, this is Dan, uh, is the vision a, a one unified state? Uh, maybe your personal view, I don't want you to speak or for your organization or maybe the organization has a position or is it a two state solution? I'm wondering if we're sort of a, like a vision of the future, if, if you could answer that before the minute or two we have left. Thank you for the question. Um, for the longest time, Palestinians have accepted the two-state solution narrative, mm -hmm. even though many disagreed with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were internal disagreements within Palestinian society about this two-state narrative, because there are some who said that, you know, who say that settler colonialism must end in Palestine, must remain Palestine. Before 1948, of course, our narrative mm -hmm. doesn't start in 1948. Mm -hmm. Palestinians have been living in Palestine indigenously for, for centuries. Mm -hmm. Palestine has existed before 1948. So, the idea that the two-state solution at the time was accepted by the Palestinian Authority, and that was the narrative. Then Israel continued its annexation of land, made that completely not viable 
physically not viable. There are enclaves not right now in Palestinian, uh, no. on Palestinian land, if we want to say the West right. Bank and Gaza at the time, that was the green line. Yep. Israel's completely uh, erased that possibility. Mm -hmm. They built a 25-foot concrete wall on Palestinian land, separating Palestinians from their farmlands, from their families. So uh, that narrative is completely gone. It is impossible to build a two-state solution right now, unless you are asking if Israel is willing to completely remove all settlements within the 1967 borders, mm. uh, which many Palestinians at, the, at this point, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the Israelis given, refuse, given and yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a moot point. For me personally, yeah. I think the only way possible moving forward is for equality, for ending apartheid, for uh, 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 Palestinians not to live as second-class citizens uh, in Palestine, um, and then uh, uh, my, my, you know, and, and, and how, what that looks like is for yeah. people to determine to determine not democratically. To, to yeah, yeah. Thank you. We have been speaking uh, with uh, Zena Ashrawi Hutchinson from the Arab American Anti Discrimination Committee. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your perspective. And I do think we gave a lot of time for you to share that perspective. I hope that was uh, that was good with you. Thank you. I very much appreciate it, Bill. And I do hope you keep the lines of communication open. Invite more Palestinians to have this narrative. Don't end with this conversation or with the, with the, the bombardment of Gaza. Let's give Palestinians a voice. Let's humanize Palestinians and, and the, the sort of erasure of the Palestinian voices in U.S. media. And I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A candidate's forum for those running for the Amherst School Committee is now rescheduled for next Wednesday. The forum, which was supposed to take place last night, is sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Amherst, who moved the meeting to October 18th and moved it from the middle school to the high school auditorium. Candidates running for Jones Library trustees will take the stage first at 7 p.m., with school committee candidates scheduled for 8 p.m. Activists blocked the entrance to the L3 Harris Technologies building in Northampton early yesterday morning to protest the company's military contracts. The activists chained themselves to a boat that was left at the entrance to the building. The activists are not calling for the closure of L3 Harris, though, just a change in the business's clientele. Nick Modern from activist group Demilitarize Western Massachusetts helped organize the protest. We don't want people to lose their jobs. We want L3 Harris to convert to making things that are supporting of life rather than death. L3 Harris is the sixth largest military contractor in the U.S. Massachusetts police are pursuing assault and battery and disorderly conduct charges against three Rhode Island men in the recent death of a fan at a New England Patriots game. The Foxborough Police Department said Thursday it was going to court to seek charges against the men in the September 17th altercation at Gillette Stadium that preceded the death of 53-year-old Dale Mooney of Newmarket, New Hampshire. Police didn't name the men. Mooney was punched at least twice in the head during an altercation with other fans. Sun-cloud combination today continued relatively mild, a high of 64 to 68. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Much cooler tomorrow, partly to mostly sunny and a high of 58 to 62. Most of the weekend looks dry. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. 
Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Jazz isn't kids' stuff, yet the Emmett Cohen Trio is positively playful with a musically adventurous spirit. They're bringing it to UMass October 19th. The pure joy of creative expression. Jazz fans the world over know it when they hear it, and they hear it when Emmett plays. Emmett Cohen Trio at UMass with South Hadley native Joe Farnsworth on drums and Philip Norris on bass. Young and daring musical energy moving the jazz tradition forward. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Emmett Cohen Trio, Thursday, October 19th, Falker Auditorium at UMass Amherst. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This is our time with State Senator Paul Mark, a segment we call On the Mark. Senator, you are in Washington, D.C. in a conference on energy. Why are you there? What are you doing? And what's it about? <laughs> it's actually funny because as we talk, as I talk to you on the radio, I'm walking by the NBC News logo. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> we're like uh, we're feet away from the Capitol building, and, and this seems to be the plaza where NBC News, C-SPAN, uh, and Fox all have their offices. So, um, yeah, I, I was uh, nominated by the Senate President to uh, attend a conference called like the Legislative Energy Horizons, and so it's 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 interesting because it's 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 a quasi conference and more like a school program, and it actually is a partnership with the University of Idaho of all places. And you receive a graduate certificate in energy policy uh, upon completion. And I'm only the second uh, person from Massachusetts ever ever to be sent here. So pretty uh, pretty interesting stuff. A lot of things that I think people at home care about uh, in, in the good pile. A lot of talk about electri uh, electrifying the grid. A lot of talk about modernizing the grid and deploying the grid, especially in rural areas. Uh, a lot of talk about how we get to... 100% uh, EV sales uh, in, in Massachusetts and California specifically uh, by 2035. Like, how do we have the grid ready for that? How do we produce energy that is clean to be ready to that and, and make that worthwhile? Because then once in a while, one of the presenters says, you know, there's some EV stations that are uh, powered by diesel on site. <laughs> it's like, well, that, that, kind of, that kind of defeats the purpose of going, uh, of going all electric. And then, uh, you know, in, in, in some of the bad stuff, and boy, I hope they don't hear me talking right now, uh, there's a lot of pr presentations from industry as well talking about how, you know, gas, uh, natural gas is a really great thing and is, is going to be around for the foreseeable future. And what, what I'm taking out of it is I think there's places where that's going to be true, 
but it certainly doesn't make sense when we think about New England. And, and a gentleman here made reference to New England, and, and I should say this is legislators from all over the country in attendance. Um, the gentleman said, well, you got New England that has the highest natural gas prices in the country, and you got Pennsylvania where the uh, natural gas is derived from with the lowest prices, and they're 100-something miles away, and you can't get the supply there. And I, I stood up and said, well, actually, we, we fought to keep a pipeline out of here. <laughs> So kind of balancing all of those needs is, is, is interesting. <laughs> at the conference you're at, the energy conference, which I take it has many representatives from uh, elected bodies ac- across New England uh, and perhaps the country, I'd, I'd appreciate knowing more about that. Um, has there been any talk about Exxon's uh, purchase for $60 billion of it's doubling down, this in the newspapers yesterday, doubling down on fossil fuels. Is that a topic? Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's interesting you said that because I saw that yesterday, and I saw it independently just, just looking through the news right after the gentleman from British Petroleum spoke, and he was the one that was talking about uh, natural gas being like this bridge fuel and, and was going to be around until at least 2040, maybe 2050. Um, but not not specifically was was this purchase mentioned, but boy, did that make me personally think they do have some kind of a plan that they are gonna uh, from the corporate level they are going to try to extract every every piece of um, profit, uh, I guess is the kind way to say out of the resources they have access to while they can. And to your other question, there are people here from all over the country. So we have people from California, uh, from the Pacific Northwest, and it's also, it's international. So we also have people from Canada, and this may surprise listeners, uh, the Canadian government, which I think we generally view as far more progressive and far more environmentally conscious uh, than certainly the national United States government, um, made a very forceful presentation on how they want United States accessing their natural resources as, as their number one trading partner. And I believe, I believe the statistic was 60% of the um, fossil fuels we use come from Canada. I'm wondering if you could share with us from your perspective whether or not you believe, based on this kind of presentation, that the – let me back up. No. I, I, I have the impression from what you're saying that the, the international oil and fossil fuel companies uh, are not buying into the idea of a green energy future anytime uh, in the immediate future. And I'm wondering whether or not this is disconcerting to you. We hear so much about we're going to have all EV vehicles, we're going to have a green future, Massachusetts is investing in a... Uh, uh, fossil-free future, but it sounds like to me at this conference what you're being told is these energy companies, these fossil fuel companies, have every intention of extracting as much as possible for as long as possible. Am I, is that a misimpression? I, I'm, I'm hearing both things. I, I guess so. So that's where I, I'm trying to present it balanced because I think the organization is, is the National Conference of State Legislatures. And again, they, they partner with the University of Idaho. I think they're trying to present like an all sides kind of kind of perspective. And so then so that being said, like I was then very pre- pleasantly surprised when the gentleman from British Petroleum 
was advocating to us as state legislators for carbon tax, for carbon pricing, and, and having it uniform throughout the country. And he was of the impression that companies like his need that to incentivize moving forward and getting off of traditional fossil fuel-based fuel sources. So there, there's, there's some things that I hear even from a corporation, a corporate, a corporate spokesperson or, or, or whatever they, they consider themselves, and I think, ooh, that's good. And a different uh, person, he was from, uh, he was from a, a, a group that was uh, representing several, several energy interests, and I think also the government of Canada, and he said it's really important that we don't greenwash, that, that some, some, some corporations, some groups are just doing that. They are just going out and saying, yeah, we're going to get there by 2070, which is like, yeah, we're, we're all going to be dead. Who cares? Right? <laughs> and so I, I appreciated that his remarks were, we don't want that. We want real solutions. And so what I like about this is that you're getting perspectives of, well, people in Nebraska feel a certain way. There's a guy here from uh, Kentucky and his district is is all about coal, and he, he's he's still advocating. Imagine in twenty twenty three, we think it's, it's it's insanity. He's advocating for clean coal, which I know doesn't exist. And I, I did have a personal conversation with him. I'm like, wouldn't you be better? I get it. You have to advocate for your district, of course. But wouldn't you be better advocating for all of those people to get like different job placements or or, or, or something new to come in? And you know, he he he, he said yes, but. I also have to I have to focus on the short term as well, or my 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 constituents don't eat. So you know it's 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 tough when we look at it that there is that there are there are communities like that that if 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 this thing that needs to eventually go away goes away tomorrow, people are out of work. But at the same time, like I, I'm saying to him is like, but there's a there's a way there's a way to transition to better jobs because those are <sighs> I don't think those are the safest and healthiest jobs anyway for the workers themselves have you heard any ideas that commend themselves to you as a state senator saying there's a good piece of legislation or there is a proposal that we could turn into law anything like that that's come out of this conference for you yeah massachusetts is actually getting a lot of praise about our plan for um ev transition there was a lot of there was a session on how we can access money from the infrastructure bill from the IRA, which is which is really important, and I, and I think that was that was really part of the point of it from from the president and uh, the Congress at the time that was was somewhat functional that we want to get money out to to the states to help them actually further their goals and meet their goals and hit the targets they want, and and so what's been most helpful to me has been talking about modernizing the grid. In rural communities, so when, when we talk about Massachusetts now, we're part of a collaborative with California and a couple other states. That by 2035, we're saying we're going to be, we're going to be, we're not going to sell new gasoline-powered vehicles. We're going to sell only electric vehicles in, in the state borders. And as I sit here today, I couldn't buy one in in, in my district because I, I couldn't find the, the, the charging capacity to allow me to keep going. And 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 for many people, they don't drive as much as me, of course. But you just you don't have the infrastructure points in places like Ashfield, in places like Monroe or, or, or Cummington. And, and so the grid as it exists today is not necessarily adequate to get 
small towns where they need to be in the next 12 years. And so finding out how at the state level we can help harness that is, is extremely important to me. And then there was a lot of praise for what we're trying to do with bringing in the offshore wind and bringing in uh, the hydro from Canada. And when you look, this this, this was the, the thing that blew my mind. And I, I come from the electrical industry in, in, in the telephone world. Uh, I think people know I've been an IBW, Electrical Workers Union member, for 23 years now. The way the grid works is, I think they said there's over 3,000 utility companies. And the grid is just this 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 patchwork, like a quilt. <laughs> it, it, it makes no sense. But the picture I'm starting to see is we can draw our energy from the wind, from, from, from the hydro, and, and push in, push into our state instead of having the fossil fuels from other parts of, of the country or Canada being brought to us. Because like, this, this really cemented to me, if even the natural gas companies are saying that this, this is for the foreseeable future, but they didn't say this is eternal, it makes no sense to invest hundreds, tens, however many millions of dollars in creating new infrastructure that is going to be outdated uh, very soon. We should be working on infrastructure for, for the new sources of energy. And, and that, felt, that felt good that, to me, we're on the right path. We are speaking with Senator Paul Mark, who is the senator for the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire district. It is a significantly rural district. On the other side, I want to ask about the infrastructure that Senator Mark just told us about, the lack of infrastructure in rural districts. I want to ask, where are the charging stations in the cities that we can all get to? We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Fitting in matters. Not feeling left out, it's only natural, especially in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming, it just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School. Hartsbrook students take their learning out of the classroom, into nature, into the community, learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook prepares a person to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for themselves and the community. This Thursday, experience the Hartsbrook School. Go to the Hartsbrook School Community Evening. Meet current Hartsbrook parents. Explore the school. Thinking about high school? The Community Evening isn't for students. It's for parents, grandparents, and family friends. All are welcome. Sign up at the Hartsbrook Facebook page. The Hartsbrook School Community Evening. This Thursday, 6 to 8.30. Want to make a difference in a big way? 
Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called BIGS. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate to Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our segment we call On the Mark with State Senator Paul Mark, the senator from the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire district. He is at a conference in Washington, D.C., focusing on energy. And I would appreciate your perspective, Senator, on how the infrastructure necessary for EVs is going to be accomplished here in Massachusetts, both in rural districts such as yours and in cities. Where are the people who rent apartments? How are they supposed to charge their cars? Yeah, so so it's it's interesting in the in the big picture, this is universal around the whole country, really someday around the whole world. If if your car needs a certain plug-in, so you pull up right now to a gas station, right, and every car you've driven, I hope, in the last fifty years, has the same nozzle. You know what I mean? You you know every you you, you can't get diesel or you get unleaded or whatever, but but you know when you pull up that it has the same thing, and then you're going to be out of there in less than 10 minutes. And then you can go for, you know, up to like 350 miles if you need, or you can just finish your local grocery shopping. So with the EV right now, the way it stands, you might have a different cord. You might have the wrong plug-in. So you might, you might have driven wherever and, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug in now. Oh, wait, this is the wrong kind of charger, and I don't know where there's another one. So that's a major problem. And then the other problem is if – if you're doing more than just the day-to-day local driving or you're going somewhere like, all right, if I'm driving to Boston, I can get to Boston and then I can charge hopefully from Boston in theory. It's, it's, it's the driving around my district is the problem that if I have to sit somewhere and charge for three hours, I'm not going to be able to get to the next place on time. And that's going to be a problem. So those are, those are two big things that have to be worked out regardless. And I think that mandates like the biggest state in the country, the most populous state in the country are going all EV in 12 years means more companies like Volkswagen. And I think maybe even General Motors are going to start announcing we're going all EV. We're not going to sell gasoline powered cars anymore, which means they're going to start figuring out how does this infrastructure work from both the private sector and then letting the government know this is what we need in terms of the grid. And there's a major responsibility from these utility companies. So like Eversource has been taking my money since I was born. <laughs> <in some capacity. laughs> you know what I mean? And yes, I, I use the electricity. I, I enjoy that. It's, 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 it's cool in my house on a 95 degree day. That, that's, that's worth paying for. But I, I expect that a part of what I pay them is going to go back into. So you're making sure the wires are keeping up with the best product. Right. And, and like we have the adequate transformers and all, all that kind of stuff. So like, Making sure that happens, again, has to be a partnership, but it needs to happen because in, in Ashfield, and I don't think Buzz is on today, but just because just Buzz lives there, you, you, you can't get, even at your home, you, you mentioned like rent, renters, so a day is going to come, and I think it's already here in some places, where you're going to have a, a cord that you know, runs into your garage or, or, or runs out the window, however it's going to work, 
it's just going to go to your car and you're going to charge it overnight when, when rates are lower and that's going to work out great for everyone. And, and, and the car itself is like a way we can store energy, which is in the battery. That that's, that's excellent. Cause it's not a great way to store energy. Um, but if your town, the wires running down the street are inadequate to handle that electrical power capacity, you're not going to be able to be part of it. And so like that, that's what we need to do. And we got 12 years to do it is we need to make sure that in, no matter which town you live in, and, and, and you mentioned the cities, including Northampton, including Pittsfield, including Boston, that you're able to do this. And so like, I go to Big Y in, in, uh, in Lee, and there's Tesla charging stations there. I don't, I don't drive that, but that's great. While you're, while you're in shopping, you can be charging. And, and, and more of that needs to happen and I think is going to happen because that's, that's where we're going. Sorry. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Senator Paul Mark, <laughs> Senator for the Berkshire Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire District. Senator, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate your insights. Hope you thank get you. even more out of the conference, the Energy Conference in D.C., and we thank you so much for your time and insights today. Thanks a lot. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, News, Information, and the Arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turners Falls, WHMP.com.